Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing the 44th Best Picture winner, The French Connection. The French Connection is a 1971 action thriller directed by William Friedkin. The screenplay by Ernest Tidyman was based on Robin Moore's 1969 nonfiction book by the same name that was actually about a very famous heroin drug bust uh, that occurred in New York City. So it's definitely like a based on real events kind of thing. And like there are definitely characters who are based on real people. Um, In fact, the two detectives that like who were involved with the real drug bust and who the characters of Cloudy and Popeye are based on actually both appear in the film and were one of a yeah they play one second let me pull up the cast list yeah so Eddie Egan who Popeye's character Gene Hackman's character Popeye is based on uh plays the like I guess like the captain guy the Walt Simonson they never actually the one who has to go get the court order for the wiretap? Yeah, him. They okay. never call him like a captain, but that's how I interpreted his character. And then Sonny Grosso, who Roy Scheider's character, Cloudy's based on, played Detective Klein. Oh. Who's like one of okay. the other detectives with them. You know, like I said, it's a sort of like a loosely based on definitely some exaggeration, I'm sure, in there. And yeah. Like in that chase with the subway. <laughs> yeah, which which I want to talk about a lot because I think you and I both don't like the characters in this. It is a 1970s cop drama. There are problematic things. I think we both were very prepared for that going in. We kind of like had a feeling that was going to be the case. Um, so the characters, not great. The vibe, often not great. Technically, though. It's a very good technically. Fantastic. Constructed film. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I had to get that out. Could not think of the right word. (laughs) Because as I said, it basically centers around these two New York police detectives who are pursuing a wealthy French heroin smuggler, which is where the name of the film comes from. And the book, the quote unquote French Connection, which was a term that was actually used because starting what I I did like a little bit of loose reading beforehand. So starting, I think as far back as like the thirties and forties with like the heyday into like the fifties, sixties. And then it was kind of dying down towards the early seventies when like all of those busts were being made. Um, a lot of the like heroin trade coming into the U S was coming through New York via Marseille. So Marseille very interesting was me. the quote unquote French connection. It was like the largest shipping port on the Mediterranean, so it was a lot harder to catch everything that was coming through, especially when you were talking about like in Reconstruction Europe in like the 50s and stuff. Like, yeah, so that's all coming in from like Marseille into New York, which is why you have uh, Charnier and the other like French mobsters, basically, who Mm -hmm. were running the heroin in. Very interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So other than Best Picture, it won for Best Director, William Friedkin won. Uh, Gene Hackman, who plays Popeye Doyle. I'm going to call him our main character. I will not call him a hero. I straight up refuse. He's very much not a hero, so you're not going to hear any complaints from me. (laughs) He's he's that kind of like toxic, like very toxically masculine anti-hero that there was definitely popular at the time and that we're definitely going to see in other 70s. Best Picture winners, for sure. 
if you could hear an eye roll. Yeah, it's not, that's not mine and Ian's favorite archetype. Especially when they have no, like, character arc. Yes, yeah, there is zero character <laughs> arc happening in this film for anybody, which I think is, is part of part of the reason we're both kind of down on the characters, because, like, they're not good people, and they're also not that interesting. Agreed. I'm like, awesome. You are a high-functioning alcoholic with a chip on his shoulder who needs to, like, sit on stakeouts overnight. Yeah. multiple times yeah okay. it's, there's not cool. a lot of layers there's not really any character arc and they're not super likable oh my god sorry you just made me think that one throwaway line about having a dead cop sorry when we get to it i will rant even more but again yeah. opportunity wasted yeah there there are some there are a couple like things that they kind of dangle in front of you like oh this could be some cool character stuff happening and then and they it's just, just fucking lazy gloss over it <laughs> Yeah, we'll talk about it. Um, but Hackman won for Best Actor, which I'm actually kind of okay with. I I think his performance was very good and natural, even if I didn't like the character. I, I agree with you. I think he took that stereotype. He's like the best example of that archetype. Yeah, yeah. Like he kind of, he laid the, he laid the foundation for a lot of what you see right. later. I, I think it's, I'm okay with him having gotten Best Actor. There is a nomination that I would rather have gotten, but we can talk about that when I talk about the other nominations from that year. Nice. Um, Roy Scheider was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but did not win. Ernest Tidyman won for Best Adapted Screenplay, which I'm, I'll am i have to look at the other nominees and pull them up. I'm kind of okay with it because I do think that it's like super well-paced. Agreed. But I think that without the cinematography and editing... I'm not sure I would feel the same way. Yeah, I would agree. Like, I think the, sh- the script is good, but I think that what really makes the movie good and frankly watchable is the editing, the score, and the cinematography. Yeah. Without that, I would have been like, all right, do I really have to watch this? Yeah, I think I would have been bored. <laughs> I agree. I, I think I would have been bored, frankly, without those things. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, but did not win. Fiddler on the Roof won for cinematography that year, which I'm I'm also down with. Yeah, I'm trying to... It's been a long time since I've seen Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, I wish we'd gotten to watch it. Yeah, I, I'm just... I'm thinking about the If I Were a Rich Man sequence. and which like, okay, so good. Okay. Well, I also I also think of the... Uh, I forget the name of the song, but the one that Tevye sings about his daughters, and you have, like, the three silhouettes of the girls on, like, the hill mm-hmm. ridgeline. Like, I yeah, I'm, I'm very okay with... Like, I think the cinematography was really good. I'm also very okay with it having lost to Fiddler, which I also think has really uh-huh. good cinematography. It won for best film editing, which I'm 100% on board with. I think, you know, we've talked about having trouble identifying good editing sometimes, but I think here it is noticeably very, very good. Oh, yeah. And the way that they pick the single take shots very deliberately Mm -hmm. and intersperse them with those quick cuts across multiple characters doing very similar parallel actions. Really, really cool. Yeah, well, and there's a scene in particular that I want to talk about later that I think is a great example of the cinematography, the editing, and the score really just making the scene. And that's the one where they're literally just on a stakeout watching a car that's been, like, left on a curb. Like, that scene in and of itself, it sounds like a really boring setup. It could be a really boring scene, but it's actually incredibly good because of the way that they handle those things. Right. And then it was nominated for Best Sound, but did not win. It is, was uh, ranked on AFI's top 100 as number 70 on the original list. 
and then dropped to number 93 on the 10th anniversary list. It is number eight on AFI's top, top 100 thrills. And Popeye Doyle is listed as number 44 on AFI's top heroes and villains list, but he's listed as a hero, which I don't like. I also think that there are better anti-heroes than him. If we're if we're talking about like him as from a quote unquote anti-hero point of view, which to me I don't really buy into an anti-hero. To me, that's just a protagonist. <laughs> like it's just an unlikable protagonist. Yeah. Well, and to get into to Popeye specifically, I'm realizing now, reflecting back on it, that why did I even care if they apprehended the French kingpin who was importing drugs like I want to I want to talk about that because I I also had that thought at one point because I was like I don't actually care whether or not he's apprehended I'm more curious to see how they do it well and I think for me too the soundtrack editing and cinematography make you care it keeps you engaged and it makes you care more than I think you would if it was fully just like do I care if Cloudy and Pop I do this no, not really. For sure. Um, in fact, I kind of like Charnier better. Oh, Still, agreed. also not a great guy, but like him better than those two. He does fewer overtly horrendous things. He just pays other people to do them for him. And we don't see that. So I... I no, there's there's no good person in this movie. There isn't a single like good person. To be clear, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Charnier at all. Oh, I'm not either. Like, like I said, he's also not a good, he's not a good guy, but there's one scene in particular I want to like I want to talk about that I was like, Charnier, you clever man. Other nominees from that year before we get too far into this. So, A Clockwork Orange, Fiddler on the Roof, The Last Picture Show, and Nicholas and Alexandra. I've seen those the first two. I don't know about you. I've read A Clockwork Orange, but did not see the film. It's very disturbing. I mean, yes. I'm sure the book was too. <laughs> but imagine imagine the book and then through the lens of Kubrick. I it's a actually time. really want to watch it. Just I was not in the right mood recently. <laughs> it's an it's one of those films that's it's very good and it is a very well-made film, but like it's not a fun time. Like, I'm okay with it not having Side, one Kind of like Midnight Cowboy? <laughs> it's better than Midnight Cowboy. But, like, it's that awesome. same vibe where you're watching it and you're like, this is this is good and interesting, but, man, is this not, like, actively not fun. And of these, the ones that I've seen, honestly, I wish Fiddler had won. I kind of I think Fiddler, because not only is it just a really good, solid movie, but it also, like has these layered overarching themes not that clockwork orange doesn't clockwork orange definitely Mm -hmm. has like some higher philosophical themes to it but it like we don't have the lovely tevier taking us through them (laughs) you just want a continuation of the happy go lucky musical 60s the roof is not happy go lucky sir that one is also a downer and actually it's it really is. funny it that is. you point that out because pretty much all of the musicals that win best picture i'm not a fan of but the ones that are nominated and don't win i tend to be a fan of like hey, i love fair. fiddler so who was the other acting nomination that you wish had won it was a uh, topol for fiddler as oh, Tevier. okay yes yes i think i, I, I think i give it won. to i think i give it to him over Hackman, although I do see, I understand Hackman winning. Mm-hmm. Even though I, I just felt more dimension 
from Topol. Yeah, the- <laughs> I think the thing with the thing for me with Hackman's performance is that it is sadly so realistic feeling. Yeah. I think that's the that's the thing there is that it, it's a very natural performance. I, I feel like I have a tendency I like Gene Hackman as an actor, but I don't I often don't like his character. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. He does well, but he plays characters that are hard to like. Yeah. And sometimes are completely unlikable. Yeah, exactly. All right. You ready to... uh... Yeah, let's jump in. So let me preface this by saying, if you, dear listener, have noticed, we have not talked at all about the content of this film. We're gushing about all of its technical merits. And that's because the first half especially is rife with horrific problems in terms of representation. I literally have, like, I think it's my third note is, like, we have ethics violations out the wazoo. Yeah. So, I mean, in the first opening scenes, we get... Well, first off, the credit scene, actually really awesome. The credits oh, are great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally agree with that with really the score coming pulsing in. soundtrack in the back. Yeah. And I love how, and they do this throughout the film, that score just drops to low ambient noise when you move into the scene. And that mm-hmm. contrast there, for me, is what pulled me in so well. <laughs> yeah, when it does that thing, too, that is so good with, like, all of the best, like, thriller soundtracks, um, where it'll, it, like, comes in, like, piece by piece and, like, mm-hmm. winds up so that, like, you also kind of, like, feel that, like, energy and that emotion, like, winding up to, like, a something's gonna happen. So they kind of, like, come in with that pretty early on. But then we go straight into the the bad stuff. <laughs> Exactly. So there's this one dude who we don't know. He's oh, wait. like Actually, first we're... We start in Marseille. Yeah. So this actually isn't the worst of the bad stuff that I was thinking about. But it's well, still... Well, honestly, this is pretty pedestrian, like all told, for a thriller. Yeah. <laughs> the Marseille part. Yeah. I actually like it because there is zero dialogue. This movie is pretty light on dialogue in general. And they do a lot with visuals and like visual metaphor and stuff that I actually really love. Mm-hmm. So we're focused on this one random character who is eating his lunch and viewing our, uh, I, I guess, kingpin. They, Popeye uses a derogatory term for a Frenchman that I will not repeat. Yeah. Another issue that I wanted to point out. <laughs> and he's watching the kingpin as he's doing his thing. But we immediately turn that around and it's very clear that this dude is the one being watched and followed as he goes about his day. So I love how that point of view change is subtle, but extremely impactful. Yeah. It's like no one's safe. Also, everybody who's tailing anybody in this movie with the exception of one scene is terrible at it. <laughs> Everyone is terrible Everyone's at it. So bad at it. Why are they allowed to do that? But yeah, anyway, anyway. <laughs> the, the guy who we saw watching the Kingpin in turn is later like gunned down. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I don't know. I did not see that coming because it was just like, I'm going about my day. I'm getting my baguette from the little store down the street. I'm getting my mail. And then all of a sudden you have in the frame just the muzzle of a pistol. Beautifully lit. And it's like, oh no, this is about to go down. And I really loved the stone cold... I'm going to pick up, tear off a piece of your baguette and eat it and walk away at the end. That was just like a perfect touch to emphasize the ruthlessness of this organization. So yeah. it's like... Yeah, like you you 100% know immediately like the the vibe of the people that we're dealing with. And we we get who are like 
quote unquote, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm going to say our antagonist because as far as I'm concerned, everyone in this film is a villain. Yes. So it's really just protagonists and antagonists. (laughs) And then we, I don't think we meet Charnier yet, right? Correct. Then it goes to Brooklyn. We've just seen him. Yes. Yeah, we've seen Charnier, but we haven't met him yet. It cuts to Brooklyn where we have, this is so twisted to me. Gene Hackman, as an undercover police officer, dresses as Salvation Army Santa. Talking to some kids on the street. It's And then his partner, Cloudy, is working like a street vendor thing. Mm-hmm. And they go in to like, it's a, it, the first one's like a diner, right? It's not like a club. I think so. Was it not the same location? It might be the same location. The, but anyway, they go into um, like a diner or a bar or something that is almost completely black patrons and we immediately have some police brutality they're like one like one guy well the partner goes in and is just like being overly abrasive and rough Mm -hmm. with people for no reason and then one guy starts running and then you have this like weirdly twisted comedic chase with gene hackman as an undercover cop dressed as a salvation army santa chasing after somebody beautifully shot a lot of that parallel framing that I mentioned earlier, where you get quick hits on every single person involved doing the same action in the same framing, all of that. But not overly so cool. choppy on the editing. It's like right. just enough to keep the pace fast for you, but not like too extreme or too fast or like jarring or something. It's, right. it's such a great balance that I find it hard to describe. And there's a lot of chases in this film. And I think they're handled really well like technically and visually totally agree now i question like what are you even doing to begin with why is this chase happening and like all of the thoughts about over policing black communities and especially disproportionate application of narcotics laws for african americans versus white people i'm sorry like all of this is running through my head right now when i'm thinking through this scene oh yeah and it's just like I was angry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Especially because, well, one, they definitely beat this guy up. And I'm over here. I'm like, both, neither of these men should be cops. They are violent, racist, angry, and frankly, pretty bad at their job. Yeah. There's no reason for them to be. They should not be cops. Um, There is one cut that I want to talk about later where they kind of throw some shade at that idea. And it made me giggle. (laughs) but anyway so they're interrogating this guy who it seems like he like might be like a low level Mm -hmm. dealer or something so like clearly now let's be clear here interrogating they have him up against oh when i roll down like yeah in like a back alley there is nothing legal about this one of them has constitutional like rebar constitutional (laughs) rights are being violated right and left in this scene like it's it's bad and this is where ian and i are both like okay so we're gonna like nobody yep (laughs) cool our quote-unquote protagonist not gonna be a fan what i think this scene is establishing narrative wise one it's establishing the characters of cloudy and especially popeye Mm -hmm. as kind of this like volatile unreliable cop i'm very torn on whether or not the movie actually does want me to like him or not i don't know i know how i feel personally but i don't know what the, if the movie is trying to make me like him or not 
I could, I could see, I think the problem is I could see it being a character that like is not a likable character, but there's always going to be someone who's like, oh my God, he's like so tough and manly, like, and just know. You can also not hear the look that I'm giving Maggie. So anyway. (laughs) It's a beautiful look. The sass in it is phenomenal. But you know what I mean? Um, I feel like that's the thing that bothers me about this character specifically is that I'm like, he's an unlikable character, but I feel like there's not, there's not enough shade that the movie throws at him that a certain type of personality wouldn't actually think that he's like badass and look up to him. And that worries me. Hey, I'm with you. So we end that scene and now we get to actually meet the Kingpin. A little we're, bit. we're also establishing that they're like in the narcotics squad right, and like right. that, that they're kind of like looking for some sort of big dealer. Yes. And actually, there are two, like, it's, I I do really like how they move back and forth between the protagonists and antagonists Mm -hmm. in sections that feel really natural and well-paced. This being one of those examples where they got the information that they needed through unethical means, means. yes, I'm not even going (laughs) to, you had the right There's no question. And now we get some scenes with some Frenchmen talking through some sort of port expansion and like, oh, we need to extend the pier. And then immediately cut over to Kingpin coming home to who I presume is his wife. Yeah, I think it's his wife. They never explicitly say it, but I'm assuming it's his wife. And we have the first of my favorite thing in this movie, and that is the plethora of amazing coats. His wife has good taste in coats. His wife gives him like this beautiful overcoat that just look, Google French Connection Charnier to see this man's beautiful coat. Trust me, you will not be let down. I will post pictures of all the beautiful coats in this film. Um, It's another thing that kept me engaged. I think the costuming in general is really, really good. But uh, it's like this beautiful like light gray coat and then it's got like the black fur or faux fur collar to it and her whole the line she says is like because new york winters are cold so we know that he's going to be going to new york yeah i some of these scenes like while they were fun to watch i kind of question why that was the way that folks decided to introduce us and show us these characters i i liked it because i think that charnier's character is one of the most interesting and there's some stuff they do later that like very much is showing the like cultural and like economic and status like quote unquote status divide between mm-hmm. like Charnier and Doyle who's hunting him. Yeah, so like he has a family, he has a kid, he has this amazing beachfront villa. Yeah. In Marseille. He doesn't it's okay. it's like interesting to me because on the surface, like, Charnier doesn't seem like a bad guy, but, like, we know for a fact that he, like, has a hitman on payroll. Like, he's smuggling heroin. Like, he's also definitely not a good guy. Like, it's, I, I find his character interesting because it's, like, a very, it feels like a more nuanced play on a stereotype that I think this then later became a stereotype because of stuff like this, but, like, it's, it gives his character more layers and makes him interesting. So immediately swap that, like, we get that introduction there. No, he's coming to New York. And now we get to see Cloudy and Popeye at the station. 
doing whatever they're doing, talking through something, dropping the N-word, like whatever. Again, don't like them. Not good people. And then they immediately go (laughs) to a club. Yeah. And the thing that like, it was just one after another. So I'm already thinking about the, the scene earlier. And now we're in this club with primarily white patrons. And the act is three African-American women. Actually a real band. The three oh, degrees. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. But like that juxtaposition to me taken through a modern lens was just like, well, isn't this just a microcosmic representation of how the United States treats African-Americans in general? It's like, all right, let us venerate culture in one hand but not the person in the other like and actively work to oppress the the person so anyway sorry i'll get off my soapbox but like this no i i agree so angry (laughs) i 100 percent agree but what this scene also establishes is how obsessive doyle is Mm -hmm. like he can't turn it off because Cloudy's over there like I thought we were just coming in for a drink and Doyle's like look at that table over there that person was like released for like Grand Theft Auto and like who is that and who is this and like that couple right there is like super shady like why would they be talking to them like there's something going on here he has no business being a cop no business being a cop no he's if they were let off for Grand Theft Auto they were let off for Grand Theft Auto (laughs) yeah like and and like the obsessiveness and then the fact that he's like I'm gonna tail them I'm like you are off the clock sir like that surely this is illegal in some way like this is this is just you basically right now as a private citizen deciding that you are going to tail somebody, aka stalking, for like no reason to like no concrete reason like he doesn't see any of them do just like a line of cocaine on the table or anything like it just he's like they look fishy I mean. Spoiler alert, he was right. But that doesn't make it okay. Exactly. Being means right is do not, not the justify only thing. the ends. Agreed. But we get uh the first of our scenes where I'm like, they're terrible at tailing people. Oh, in the car trying yeah. to find Also, they do this shot where they ha there's like the straw hat in the car that they like put like he uh, I think Cloudy yeah. throws it into the back window and there's like a zoom in shot on it. So I was like, is the hat going to become important? Like, is some are they going to recognize the car tailing them because they can see that hat in the window? Nope. Never, never addressed. Never. It was the red herring on a wall. <laughs> I was so mad about it. I was like, oh, because I thought that would have been like a, like a cool thing if like they're in a situation and then like the person realizes that it's them because like they saw the straw hat, but no. Many missed opportunities. That's the big one to me. That was the big one. I don't know if there were that many other. But anyway, they're tailing this this couple. It's like a woman with like a blonde bouffant hairdo and the guy who becomes, I think it's it's Boca, right? Mm-hmm. It is. It's Boca and, and his, his wife. wife. They at some point like switch cars. Um, it's very obvious that Popeye and Cloudy are tailing them because they're like following down, them down non-busy streets. Like they're doing U-turns and then the cops are doing U-turns and it's like really, really obvious. <laughs> Now, the music and Music's soundtrack. Music's great. The, and the editing. So Phenomenal. Got to, got to let us see all of the U-turns. <laughs> Every single one. <laughs> um, but so they switch cars and they kind of tail them back to this like magazine and sandwich shop. Sal and Angie's. Sal and Angie's. And it is Sal Boca and his wife, Angie. And we realized that like she was wearing a wig. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we have Sal and Angie. I also, their fashion is amazing. It's very 70s. 
it's it's the best. I'm really starting to learn that I kind of like the 70s aesthetic. <laughs> like all of the old cars in this movie, I was like really loving. Also, only 70s cars can take the beating that some of these cars take. I mean, even then, I think some of the stuff was questionable. Like that car would not still be running, but that's just my yeah, two cents. It might be. It's a 70s car. <laughs> Pure steel, baby. So yeah, we get the like a voiceover introducing us to these characters and kind of what they've been on and I kind of liked it. I was kind of into this. I wasn't mad at it. It was kind of cool to see them in their setting being like spied on from yeah. outside, but It was a nice little efficient data dump kind of done in like a cool way. Yeah. I kind of I kind of liked it. I've seen it done much worse. That I'll agree with. So yeah, take it or leave it. We get to know about these characters. They have a rap sheet, like see some questionable interactions with some French folks. I don't know if you see that here or later, but anyway, we do yeah. see, no, it is later, it, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter. I think this, it's, this I think is... it's that we know that they're attached, like connected to Charnier, but Doyle and Russo don't yet know that they're connected to Charnier. This movie relies a lot on dramatic irony. It does. For sure. It's for But it's sure. interesting because it balances the dramatic irony while still keeping some stuff from us. Like we have, like there are multiple shots that give us the understanding that they are definitely using cars to smuggle the heroin, but we're also not sure like where in the car. Right. We, so we're like, pretty sure which car though. <laughs> yeah. Like we, like we know it's coming through, through cars. We think we know which car it is, but we don't know like where. So there's like the scene much, much later where they're like tearing apart the car, which I think is extremely well shot, but where we also kind of are on the edge of our seats because we're like, we know it's got to be in there. Yeah, like, yeah. But where is it? So it does like a nice little balance of using dramatic irony, but also like keeping some mystery to keep the audience engaged. Yeah. So we then move into now the third scene with problematic representation. Yep. This is a an unannounced raid. I'm not sure if it was even like officially sanctioned. I don't know how I'm cops gonna go the with narcotics no. operated. But he basically barges into another bar with exclusively black clientele and like shakes everybody down for narcotics. Yeah. And then is mad because he does he finds other stuff, but he does not find what he's looking for. Exactly. And this is another situation this was the missed opportunity that i was thinking of earlier where it appears they have this undercover cop they have an or they have an informant of some kind i don't know if he was an undercover cop i think he's credited as just informant but i also got really excited because i was like oh what a great time to introduce a new character who might be likable (laughs) and instead he just punches him to make it look realistic and they leave yeah and we never hear from him again yeah, it's an interesting interaction, though, where the, he just kind of looks at me like, so where do you want it? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, um, I guess this side. <laughs> and then he socks him. I just... Yeah, but it's it was... I agree. I think that was a huge missed opportunity to introduce a new, much more riveting character. Yeah, somebody that had the right motives, maybe. I liked the actor, too. I thought he had, like, really great pres- like screen presence and mm-hmm. stuff. I thought he was, like, doing well acting across Hackman. So I agree. Huge missed opportunity. But this is like, this is that, that would be the scene for me that was just like the straw that broke the camel's back. And I'm like. It is a very real scene in a very bad way. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, plot wise, what we get from this is that 
the informant tells Popeye there is like there is a big dealer moving heroin into the city like there's like rumors but no one knows who it is right and like so like he can't really give Hackman a better lead than like confirmation kind of but we're getting like confirmation that there is somebody moving into the city and that there's gonna there is going to be like a big deal coming down so therefore now Popeye can take it to his boss and be like look let us go on special assignment and do more really bad stakeouts and really bad tailing. Oh God! And they do get that wiretap. That they do they get the wiretap, which I mean, fine, fine. This wiretap scene, I'm like kind of torn on. Like, it was kind of weird. You mean the initial scene asking for it, or the scene when they were actually listening? The, to the scene tape? when they're actually listening to the tape. Oh God! So yeah, if if we take that story arc there really quick, they ask for it, they get it. Now they're sitting in the incinerator room, like sketchily listening to this reel-to-reel tape. I mean, yeah, like, well, they're like listening to the wiretap and yeah. like playing cards and like drinking. And I was like, are they drinking alcohol? And laughing. Or oh, are they're they drinking dr- alcohol. Okay, because my other thought was like, are they drinking energy drinks? Because they're up Maggie, really late. Maggie, this was the 70s. <laughs> Could have been Four loco, Ian. <laughs> 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 I bet you anything people in the 70s would have been all over Four loco. They would have been like, this is my jam. Anyway, uh... But because they're kind of manic about it, they establish that it is very late at night that they've been listening to these tapes for like, like this tap for like hours and hours. And they get so excited when they find it. I know it's like a manic degree. And that's when I was like, have they had too many energy drinks? And then I also remembered what time period it was. And I was like, no, that's booze. That's definitely booze. They also probably like did some narcotics from the evidence locker because it's the 70s. <laughs> um. Anyway, so... They, they get confirmation through the wiretap, though, that Boca has a French, a quote-unquote mm-hmm. French connection. There we go. So now they're, like, gonna gonna stake out Boca. Yeah. And follow him around. Mm-hmm. Badly. Now, bef- very, very, very badly. Now, kind of interspersed with these scenes, we also see the car in question actually bring, being brought into the United States. So mm-hmm. a crush of reporters is interviewing this famous French uh, TV actor, personality. Yeah, who had agreed. Yeah, he's like a TV personality or an actor, but he had agreed. We saw him in a scene earlier with Charnier agree mm-hmm. to like smuggle stuff for him. Yes, which was this gorgeous brown Lincoln Continental, which again, brown, what a mid-century car color. Okay, I'm not, I'm not like a huge car person. I really loved all these cars. Oh yeah, they were good. Well, and it's great. it's interesting too. Th- the mental image that I have from cars from the '60s and '70s is that they have this like very dull, kind of corroded, old, broken down look about them. But seeing them new, it's like I get it. I get why this yeah. was the yeah. thing. <laughs> like it's a good looking car. Yeah, it could take out a wall, but it's a good looking car. <laughs> no, aesthetically. This film is really great. Like, I just, any, all the set design, all of the props work, all the costume work, like, hats off. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so we've seen the car get brought in, and this is where we have, um, there's, like, clearly some sort of, like, drop-off or something happening with Boca, but this is where they're tailing Boca, I think, right? It is, but before that, there is the bit of visual shade that they throw at Popeye that I really loved, and that's when Russo, one, he's saying stuff to, like, their, I'm going to call him their captain. I don't think they ever call him their captain, but Simonson, 
And um, he says something about like, I go with my partner. And I'm like, that's a logical fallacy. That's going to get you in a lot of ethical trouble. That blind loyalty. And then also, although Russo is definitely also not not great. They say something. Uh, there's the FBI agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's his name? Who's introduced? This is when they like get the wiretap, I think. Muldrig. Anyway, he's introduced and... Simonson's like Doyle's a good cop cut to Popeye passed out at a bar in the middle of the day and I loved that little bit of shade that they threw I wish they'd thrown more frankly well and I'm gonna go ahead and say that 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 cut there is enough evidence that it's clear you're not supposed to like him that makes me feel better I was like I hope the filmmakers don't want me to like him because I definitely don't (laughs) but I liked that shade though like he's a good cop cut to him blatantly not being a good cop yeah so you are absolutely correct that they are tailing Boca here. This movie made me want to buy a trench coat so bad. It did because they were so good. Oh, and they the also thought that so they were good. the only uh, disguise that they needed. Yeah. Uh, there's no. also, sorry, the scene <laughs> when when they're in the bar being like really bad cops, one of the um, bar patrons is wearing this just beautiful tweed overcoat. And I just really loved it. And I needed to point that out. Hey, that's fine. I get it. So they're trailing Boca. They pick up uh, Charnier and his associate. Yeah, the I can't. Is that the the assassin dude? I think the it is man? the assassin dude. Nicoli. Anyway, I think this is the bit, according to my notes, where they're trailing Boca because that's definitely when I started envying a lot of people's trench coats. And you have like Russo actually run into Charnier at one point, but this yeah, is going this down is the, into the bit. Mall where they're actually tailing people correctly. And this is the bit that I actually love the way it was shot because you have three different people tailing this guy, right? So they're like switching up their positions because apparently the way you're supposed to tail people is you have at least three people. So like if your target is walking down a street, you have one person who's like the first person behind them. You have one person across the street and then you have a second person who's like, far back and then you like can rotate which is kind of what they do where they'll they'll have like one person will be like watching and then that guy will stop at a shop window to like see if he's being tailed so like one of the cops will like act like they're looking at something in the shop window and then go in opposite direction and then like the next person picks the guy up on the next corner to tail so like that is one I love the way it was shot there's no dialogue which is really cool. The score is doing its finest work in this scene. Like the editing's really good. The cinematography's good. Like it was a fun, interesting scene to watch happen. And they were actually doing their job correctly. For once. Yay. <laughs> For once it wasn't blatantly obvious. I completely agree with you though. That that was kind of the scene where the the decision to either keep it as one shot, one continuous shot versus chop it up. And I shouldn't say chop it up because that makes it sound so imprecise. <laughs> no, the editing was just, um, it was spot on. Yeah. All of a sudden, they've split off enough. So now they are following um, Charnier. And they see him and his associate having this amazing looking meal. This is, okay, so this is that like visual symmetry mm-hmm. that I was talking about. The like juxtaposition between Charnier and Doyle specifically. Because one, we're also getting Doyle's obsessiveness. 
Oh my he's god, because like, he's like I... cold as hell in this stoop, just refusing to take his eyes. And off he's of... like looking through the window at Charnier eating, and I'm like, also, could you be more obvious that you were clearly a cop watching somebody? Yeah. Um, but you have it'll like cut to like Charnier enjoying like these amazing looking food. I was so hungry. Um, and like drinking amazing coffee versus Doyle on the stoop, eating his slice of slice of pizza in the cold, like looking cold the interior of the place where charnier is sitting is all of these like warm colors so it looks warm and inviting mm-hmm. there's the beautiful bit where you can see hackman through the window and he takes the sip of the coffee and it's clearly bad and oh, he, he pours, pours it out camera comes back into the window to this beautiful like silver coffee pot pouring this amazing looking coffee into a cup for charnier like With it dessert. was like that was just great movie making yeah Oh, yeah. Like, again, technically, technically, I think this movie is one of the best ones we've seen. Mm-hmm. Character-wise, no. <laughs> That's why I think ultimately my recommendation is going to be like, here's the scene you should watch. Yeah, I feel like this is this is when you watch for set design. You're watching it for costumes. You're watching mm-hmm. it for score. You're watching it for cinematography. You're watching it for editing. Yeah. So they finally have found him great. There's this is where kind of the next period of the film is an interspersion between Boca working on getting this deal finalized along with Popeye and Cloudy doing their really horrendous jobs at tailing folks. <laughs> so so bad. Like if if we start with the the one where Boca's like trying to get this deal together, I actually really loved how they did the scene in the like a really nice apartment testing out the purity of the heroin with the creepy ass chemist. Oh yeah, well, who, who was is that? Very I can't clearly remember what that actor. Oh yes, because they have his the teeth makeup done, and then they yep. also as payment like let him keep some of the stuff, and they are establishing that it's like super pure heroin, so therefore worth a ton of money. Exactly. I I thought the actor who played the chemist did actually a really great job because every time he was on scene, he like kind of stole the scene. Oh yeah, and was like perfectly <laughs> creepy and like. And honestly, did you ever of... watch Courage the Cowardly Dog? Yeah. Do you remember the dentist brother? That, a little bit. It always scared me. Okay, the dentist brother in Courage is what I immediately thought of. Anyway, really, really good. Yeah. The way they focused on the like thermometer as well, building that suspense with the score. I like. I want to say yeah. there was the score there as well. It's just they do a really good job at building that suspense in a way that you don't really know why you care that it's so pure. But I, yeah, all like of you're a like, I, I don't do. care about this. And frankly, <laughs> I don't know what a lot of the words he's saying mean, but I'm riveted. Yeah. And they're using like super extreme close ups on mm-hmm. stuff in that scene too, which gives it kind of like a creepy, uncomfortable feel. Yeah. Well, I agree. A well done scene. So during all of the sequence, as Ian mentioned, they're doing some really bad trailing. I want to specifically talk about the scene where Popeye gets made with the subway. He's an idiot, but this scene is phenomenal. And infuriating. Because um, he's and, an idiot. <laughs> and this is where um, Fernando Ray, who plays Charnier, just beautiful, beautiful performance. Doyle notices Charnier come out of the hotel, and we've already established that Charnier 
definitely knows something's up, definitely knows he's being followed because when he was followed into his hotel previously, he took the elevator to the sixth floor. But when Doyle asked the person at the desk, he lived on the fourth. So he knows something's up. He's also smart enough to take precaution. Oh, yeah. So, well, and it, one thing that is kind of interesting to, to like take a really quick sidestep, they actually, Boca and he went to D.C. to like have a discussion away from the heat. And Boca was like totally spooked. Sharni is calm as a cucumber. So like he is a pro. So I just wanted to like underscore that. <laughs> yeah, although Charnier is very adamant that they have to follow his timeline. He is very adamant about that. He's like, we oh, can't yeah. stick around um, because the backer for like Boca, um, the money behind him is like, no, 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 let's like wait it out. Let's not rush into stuff. Right. Anyway, so Charnier at one point is leaving his hotel. I guess the people who were supposed to be watching him are just like not paying attention. It's very odd. Just not paying attention at all um, because it shows several of them and they're just not paying attention at all. Anyway, Doyle wants to go like sees this happen and is like immediately like on it, but like in a very manic, obvious way that he means he's clearly a cop who's clearly... (laughs) tailing somebody um but he follows charnier into the subway and charnier gets on the train and you see doyle like frantically elbowing his way into the middle of the train not suspicious i know right right before kind of before it's supposed to leave charnier steps off the train which basically means you just saw doyle elbow his way in there very conspicuously So either he loses Charnier or he has to get off the train, which makes it even more obvious that he's tailing him. So he gets off the train. But he does try to pull this poor woman with him. I know. I was like, I'd be so pissed if I'd hurt. I'd be like, what the fuck, man? Like, that was my train. (laughs) Screw you. And then he tries to play it off at the payphone and with some cockamamie, like, bartender story. Yeah, and he's, like, calling calling Simonson and being, like, uh... He's here on the subway and all that stuff. Um, Charnier is at the like little snack kiosk that's like in the subway and like orders something. Anyway, so Charnier is like sipping his drink. Popeye very conspicuously wanders over there and orders something. There's more waiting for trains. There's Charnier getting on another train. Popeye conspicuously (laughs) getting on it too. Charnier stepping off. To, like, throw his cup away. Popeye also stepping off and pretending to throw away, like, the candied apple he was eating. And it's, like, the whole time this has happened, like, it happens a couple times where, like, Charnier gets off and then Popeye gets off and then Charnier gets back on. It's very clear that Charnier is keeping his cool and is just, like, fucking with Popeye and that Popeye is losing it and also terrible at this. It ends with Charnier outfoxing him and getting on the train and there's the beautiful shot of the train pulling away Doyle turning around and realizing Charnier isn't there and Charnier just waving at him I just I uh anyway it's a great scene though it is so great but it's a so great infuriating scene. it is infuriating but also because I don't like Popeye I really don't care whether or not he's successful and I'm more of just like enjoying watching somebody fuck with him oh that's fair that's very fair <laughs> so Next scene is that Washington, D.C. scene that I mentioned. Only other thing is that scene on the airplane. The, the old plane. What a time capsule. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if only. 
the part at the ticket counter where she tells him to put his name on both tickets. Yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. Oh, speaking of that, in one of the scenes, you could actually see the World Trade Centers being built. Yeah. So that was like Talk about taken trippy. through a post 9-11 thing. It was like, whoa. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was a, so. that was a trip. Anyway, I digress. Uh, this is where we get the shootout, which I was not ready to have happen. And also, why why did they have to sacrifice this poor woman just walking? Like, that kind of pissed me off. It's like, you could have had this this sniper shoot at Popeye without killing anybody and had the exact same impact. I agree. I think they are going for bigger impact because it's uh, an innocent woman who's pushing a baby carriage. And they're like, what's more sad than that? But... I We're think... damsel in the freezering this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they 100% fridged that woman. But basically what happens is you have Charnier's hitman guys like, I'm going to take him out. And Charnier's like, okay, I guess. Like He kind of warns him too, though. He's like, just just let it be. Like, there will be another. Like, if you take him out, there's another one. And the guy's like, but we'll be gone by then. <laughs> this guy also poor at planning. I've decided that. Most of these people are very poor at planning because no one ever seems to have a good escape plan. <laughs> no, well, I would argue that this assassin dude actually did have a good escape plan, but we had some fanciful filmmaking that... I'm going to disagree on his good escape plan, and I will tell you why. I don't think he thought he was going to miss. I don't think he planned an escape because I don't think he thought he was... He gives the vibe and some of the stuff he says in the conversation to Charnay. I don't think he thought him not succeeding was a possibility. But yeah, so he's on the roof of Popeye's apartment, mm-hmm. takes some shots at Popeye as he comes home. Popeye ends up getting away and going up to the roof where he sees the rifle and stuff. Also, Gene Hackman with that tiny little bitty pistol was kind of cracking me up. I mean, up close, Cause okay. Because he's, he's, <laughs> he's not a small guy. It was really funny. The pistol is really tiny. Um. Anyway, he gets up onto the roof. And sees the guy clearly having gotten off the roof, like running away below, right? Okay, real fast. If the guy was already that far away, no fucking way would he have been able to catch up. He wasn't. He was that four far. or five stories up. He would have had to run down those stairs. But how big is the building? Because the guy may have had to run like all the way around it to get to the street to go to the. But so train. would. So would Popeye. Ian, stop injecting logic <laughs> into my chase scenes. That's not what chase scenes are for. Uh, but it made me so mad. <laughs> anyway, this is this is like a super iconic film chase scene, and it's very well done. It is a good chase scene. Um, so the guy runs and gets on like the train, like the elevated mm-hmm. train, and you've got the street below the train where Popeye steals some poor civilian's car. And then trashes it. And then trashes it. Um, that poor guy also before cell phones. And that guy was this like, guy when am to... I going to get it back when, as Popeye just drives off? And I'm like, you're not. <laughs> you shouldn't have gotten out. <laughs> you will not be getting it back. I'm so sorry, sir. But you have these great cuts between Popeye going through this chase underneath the train and getting hit by cars. Apparently, like there was just supposed to be a lot of near misses and nothing was supposed to actually hit that car. But there was like mistiming and stuff. Like it's a very complicated chasing. There were like mistimings and everything that led to like actual collisions. Oh, okay. That's actually a really cool... Yeah, and they're using, you get a lot of like point of view of the car. There's like a camera mounted on the front bumper, which is where you get those like low shots along Mm -hmm. the street. Um, I think it's sped up though, you can tell. So like, yeah, the collisions wouldn't have been as at high of a speed as some of them look like they are most likely. But like, yeah, it is still 
it's a pretty rough and tumble little little chase down below. Meanwhile, up top in the subway, you have the guy hijacking the subway train. And this is the part that made me think I was like, this guy did not plan super well because he did not think he was going to not get out of this because the smart way would have been for him to have a plan that would allow him to just slip away and not have to hijack anything, thereby calling attention to himself. But instead, he gets on the subway train, realizes that Doyle is after him and panics because there's the beautiful shot when Doyle first gets up to the subway platform and the guy's on the other side about to get on the train and it's just a close-up on each of the people stand like moving down the line, mm-hmm. standing at the platform across the way. And then it stops on the guy who's like kind of hidden behind a pillar with his back turned. But it keeps going and then it comes and back. And it goes back and you're like, <laughs> that's the guy. Um, and then he gets on the train. He hijacks the train, basically won't let it stop at the next stop because Doyle's already driven to the next stop to try and head him off. He's not there. It ends up with the subway train colliding with another train that was like leaving a station. So mm-hmm. train's out. Everyone's kind of knocked down. Assassin guy who loses his gun in that bit after he's killed more innocent people. Awesome. Yeah. Which one? Sad. Two. Again, I don't think he planned it well because that's drawing attention to yourself, which means you can't slip away. Nope. This is a very iconic scene, and it's the poster of the movie. It's the guy running. Popeye, he has come down the subway stairs. Popeye is there. He gets out of the car, clearly injured from all of his stuff. The guy turns around, starts running back up the stairs. He says, stop, but shoots him anyway. Oh, that is the movie poster. It's the movie poster. I've only seen the updated movie poster, which is the blockade of cars at the bottom of the ramp after the handoff has been made. That's not as good of a poster. It's not as good of a poster. Because it's a very iconic shot. And then you have the hitman falling down the stairs and Popeye collapsing on the stairs after his very questionable police work. And by questionable, I mean unethical. What? What? Just repercussions. Are there any? Just want to point this out. Zero. There are the most minor of repercussions given to us at the very end they get reassigned yeah which is basically no repercussions at all bad cops which means that they still have power of some sort and are still out there among the general populace even though we have established they are angry violent people who should not have this authority or weapons now i'm willing to distance the character of popeye from the real person popeye but my acceptance of that repercussion is... Is the fact that you know nothing about the real person. Exactly. I know nothing about the real person. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, once again, I have not done much reading outside of the movie itself. So all my critiques are based on the movie. So we're rapidly moving toward kind of the climax, I would say. I would call that film. chase our climax, really. No, I agree. I mean, there is that shootout at the end that probably is the quote-unquote climax. It's a disappointing one in comparison to the chase. Had they been able to somehow work the chase in at the end, I would have been so much more on board. Yeah, but then we also have that film that I was, or that scene that I was talking about partway through where they're like staking out the car. Yeah. Where like literally, it's so tense. And I was like, why is this so tense? It's literally, there's just an abandoned car sitting on the side of the road. And I was like, oh, because the score, the editing and the cinematography, that's why it's so tense. Well, and the lighting in that as well. So the car that Doyle and Cloudy are in, 
it, just the lighting on them is amazing because they're kind of under this some interesting bridge. stuff and they do it multiple times with the stakeouts where cloudy's actually taking time to sleep and doyle's not which i'm like great let's let's feed this i this mean person's I paranoia like we have established that popeye does not really sleep yeah which is clearly not good i mean I remember reading something about the U.S. military doing research on sleep deprivation and how long you can go without sleeping before it's like actually It's a not long. It's, it's not long. <laughs> not long at all, actually. Anyway, it kind of like throws a wrench in their plans. They know who Charnier is. I forget. I watched this movie this morning and I'm forgetting what exactly... I guess they just, they impound the car, right? Well, so there was a, a an other car that circled the block three times. They got out. They were just going to steal the wheels. Yeah. But. But they impound that car. Mm-hmm. And they tear it apart. Which this scene is so well shot. Agreed. It's, it's again those, as you mentioned earlier, with the testing the purity, like close-ups. It's these close-ups of the actual physical acts of ripping out the body panels, all the insulation. This is, when people talk about show, not tell, especially with movies, which is such a visual medium, it is this because there is so little dialogue, but we see, and it's not like they're showing us everything that they rip out, but they show us enough that we get the fact that they are going through this entire car. Like they are emptying the oil. They are doing everything. And then at the very end, there's also a beautiful bit where it's like, the door raises and Doyle's sitting there and looking like super manic. But basically they're like, we haven't found anything. We haven't found anything. And then the mechanic is like, I've torn apart everything, but, and I forget what it's called. The rocker panel, I think. Yeah. The rocker panel. And okay. So like, but this is also that? after that wonderful, like what was the weight when it came in? And I was thinking to myself, Oh yes, this is so good. Also you have the French actor and his lackey who have shown yeah. up to be like, let's, um, like, where's my car? I'm amazed they got it back together so quickly, to be honest, to give it to him. Yeah. The thing, though, that like cracks me up is that he's like, well, why were you there? I was scouting film locations at like 2 a.m. in the middle of the night on an abandoned street. It's it's fine. It's fine. It's Well, what I was not sure they were going to do or not, though, it was put the drugs back in the car. Oh, yeah. And they did, which I think was honestly kind of a brilliant cat and mouse game move. Yeah, but as you were talking about the stuff with the weight. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, hey, there's 120 pounds of unaccounted for weight in this car between what the manual says it should be versus what it weighed in at when they brought it in and impounded it. Um, and that is when you got the rocker panel comment. So yeah, that was that was like, just I kind like, of like a fun little... It was some actual detective work. Yeah. Which is kind once. of fun. But yes, yeah, so they take out the rocker panels and that's where they find the drugs. They later put the car back together and give it to the actor. But they're like, okay, we now know everything that's happening. There is a scene that I don't remember exactly when it's happened, but that we had alluded to earlier that I do want to talk about. And that's the car crash scene. And I think it's before this because it's back when Doyle and Russo haven't found anything concrete. And that's when they're all showing up at that like horrific car accident. And the just, like, blasé nature, like, the gall and disrespect that they have because it's the FBI agent and Doyle fighting over just, like, nothing in the middle of, like, this horrible car accident where, like, three people have died. And they don't shy away from showing you, like, these people dead in their cars all bloodied from the crash. Like, it's... Right. It's like... I was not expecting that. 
And I think it transitioned off the plane, like the plane scene led into that, I think. Because I remember being like super shocked at the change. The way I took that scene, like I'm kind of torn on it, but the way I took it was as like, look how callous these people are. Like, look what they care about. Like, it's a pissing contest between this FBI agent and Doyle versus like all this horrible stuff that like just happened. And that's when Mulrig, the FBI agent, makes like one of the first few allusions to like, the last time Doyle had a hunch, well, Doyle's like had a hunch. Illusion. I think I think he, it's said like once or twice more, but it's like I think maybe when Mulrig is first brought in, he alludes to it too. But basically, he's like the last time Doyle had a hunch, like a cop died. And this leads to a fight. But again, I thought that this was extremely lazy. I do too, because we never get any information about that, and I don't. It didn't need to be in there for us to not like Doyle or think that Doyle was off his rocker. Like I already very much thought that well and that is a thread that doyle's character arc could have been like tied to but yeah. there was no character arc it could have given you like any sort of motivation for him but i mean at this point in that movie like my bar is pretty low <laughs> like had you taken that a smidge like maybe when he shot mole rag at the very end yeah because they follow the they stake out where the handoff takes place, where like the drugs are handed off and they take the drugs yep. out of the rocker panels and they put the money in the rocker panels. Of a different car that they had bought earlier. Yeah. it's And then like the cops show up at the house, there's a little bit of like a shootout. Again, the people who were doing the switch for like the drugs and the money, where was your escape plan? You needed to have one. There was none. And they all very clearly panic. Also, a lot of people knew where those drugs were stashed. So I'm kind of thinking to myself, if I'm the one buying these, why am I showing the people I just bought them from who are questionable people where I am hiding them so that they can come back later, already have the money, and then take the drugs back? Anyway, sorry. That is where my brain went. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's a valid point. Anyway. There's like a little bit of a shootout. Doyle goes immediately after Charnier. And at one point, like as he's like clearing this really gross looking old house looking for Charnier. Oh, well, it was one, like a one, factory or something. Yeah, like it was like it an old factory or an old warehouse like a foundry, maybe. I think. Anyway, at one point he almost shoots Russo, his partner. Foreshadowing. And then he does shoot Mulrig, the FBI agent. And even Russo's like, you shot Mulrig. And zero remorse no caring like we can tell that doyle a hundred percent is only the only thing he is focused on at all now is getting charnier yeah so that was that tie-in to you your hunch killed a cop before now you you personally have killed another this cop by your own hand yet you don't show any remorse this this was like the final nail in the because he doesn't care about any like he's so obsessed on this one thing that's all he cares about and then like he like goes into another room or something there's just like a kind of a sudden to black and we hear a gunshot and then that's where we get the like so and so went to jail for this Mm -hmm. angie angie just gets off (laughs) scot-free i mean good (laughs) for her i I like angie she's in very few scenes but i liked her 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 uh very late 60s like black turtleneck and like all black get up was was phenomenal um (laughs) I told you I was so into the fashion in this film. Um, like various people are arrested. It gets to like the Charnier was never found, which of mm-hmm. course sets him up to come back in a sequel. And then um, 
Russo and Doyle are like reassigned from narcotics, which is their quote unquote consequences that are not actual consequences, as we previously discussed. Yeah, I found the ending to be like it kept the pace up. The fact that they made the handoff, everybody left, but then they basically got funneled back in. Like that was somewhat like tension building. You get a little bit of a shoot off, but I just. It's classic for the genre. That's yeah. It just, it was a letdown after the chase scene, like the subway chase scene. Mm-hmm. Anyway, technically, great film. Everything else, just highly questionable to actively bad, <laughs> depending on what we're talking about. It's, honestly, like for me, I was thinking about it because I was like, I don't, like, it's not a bad film, but it's also not like great. Like there's, I think I just find the, characters kind of boring and they're like there's they're very one well (laughs) the characters they're problematic but they're also so one-dimensional and i think because we've had problematic characters before but they've also been interesting Mm -hmm. so they're they're like fun to talk about they haven't been all bad and basically well they've been they've been layered so like there's been stuff to talk about with them and i feel like they're just the characters in this one were just so one-dimensional that, like, there's not really a whole lot to talk about with them. Yeah. And, like, I'm a very character-driven watcher. Um, I like layered characters. I I like characters that are, like, interesting or have some sort of, like, cool contradiction mm-hmm. or something. But, like, these didn't really. So, like, what really did keep me engaged was all those technical things, like the pacing, yeah. the score, the cinematography, well, and to be the clear... The fact that we had to watch it for the podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But I think to get to a layered character, I think Popeye, he had all of the breadcrumbs available in the film, and they were actually, like, in the film, between him being an alcoholic, the pretty much throwaway scene where he manages to pick up a woman in red boots on a bicycle. There's multiple, like, little things early on where he talks about boots. He seems to have, like, a boot fetish. <laughs> it's, like, hey, really to weird. Each his it, like, own. But it's just like kind of dropped in in a couple scenes and like never, never revisited yeah. or like. But there's that. He was passed out at a bar. Like all of this stuff, had it been. His relationship with like his informant could have been yep. given more. Uh, there was what, the thing with like the other cop that died could have been given. Yeah, there were just missed opportunities. Yeah, to make him it a real character. Yeah. I, but I, but then I still feel like with Hackman's performance, like he f- he felt fairly realistic. I think it was realistic, but the thing is, I I would argue that if we see people in those positions in real life, we are only seeing their like the thin veneer of what they put out into the world. That's <laughs> and that's true. what we saw with Popeye. True, and with if it's a movie, you really want to see more. I yeah, I just there's also like no real character arc. Like he starts the movie at like ninety percent crazy and then just ends it at a hundred percent crazy. Well, there's your arc. <laughs> but that's only ten percent of an arc, Ian. I want more. I want more of an arc. I just yeah. I don't know. Let's just let's settle on into rankings because I am very unsure on my ranking. Yeah, so I I do definitely struggle with this. Um because the, as we have hammered home multiple times, the filmmaking aspect of it, like the literal 
this is what my frame looks like. This is how I put it together. This is what my sound is going to be. Like those portions of this film are quite frankly outstanding. Like in the top 10, I would probably say from that perspective. Agreed. But at the same time, and call me a presentist, I don't really care. Like I cannot get past the the representation issues in the movie. And that that's like definitely colored by recent events for sure and like my own personal beliefs on a lot of this stuff so like i'm slotting it in at like 31 so it's super 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 low there um and it's really it comes down to the the content and i think had you tweaked it so it weren't so it was not or didn't have the overt racism and all of that stuff i may have put it higher but for me, that puts it before Grand Hotel, technically outclasses Grand Hotel, hands down. Mutiny on the Bounty is what it's right below. And I think that comes down to how well Mutiny aged versus French Connection aged in my mind. Mutiny <laughs> still had issues in that Slightly middle section. Better. But me, me even saying this is potentially like, how can I justify this opinion? But like the... Issues with French Connection hit much closer to home than the issues with Mount Mutiny on the Bounty. And that's kind of like colored my view of the two films differently. Yeah, I mean, we've we've talked multiple times about how when we watch these movies, like even like time of day or what mood you're in when you watch a movie can really color your opinion of it, um, let alone current events mm-hmm. that will always have a massive impact on it. I I actually also have it fairly low. It is number 27 for me, so just after Oliver, just above Midnight Cowboy. I I find it more cohesive than Midnight Cowboy. I, th- I think it's a solid thriller, but like, you know, when we're talking Best Picture winners, and I say this as the person who absolutely adores It Happened One Night and has that super high on my list, even though the fact that that is really just a lovely little rom-com. But it's a really good rom-com. Yes, like... very true. To some extent, like... <laughs> A lot of our Best Picture winners, like you have it below Grand Hotel. I actually have Grand Hotel several steps above French Connection. And it's because, well, like, yes, technically, like, that's not as good as French Connection. Like, a lot of the movies I have above French Connection are trying to do something more. Like, they're raising philosophical questions and stuff. And, like, French Connection definitely raised some philosophical and ethical questions for us. Like, we definitely we're coming at it from that frame of mind given Mm -hmm. current events and our own personal beliefs. But I don't think that's the intention of the movie. I don't think, and you know, I'm saying this also as a person who thinks that like intention isn't always the most important thing. It's also how people interact and like view a piece of art and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But the French connection, like it's, it's job is to like the thing it's trying to do, I think is be a solid thriller. And I think it is a solid thriller. I don't think it's trying to make any sort of like greater commentary, Mm -hmm. which like considering some of the stuff that like the films I have above it have like the questions they've tried to tackle, like the themes that they have had. Like, I don't really know what the French Connections theme is. I'm with you here. Like, yeah, like it just made no moral judgment on anybody. Or it didn't even, I mean, not even moral judgment. Like think about Patton, where I think we were talking in that one where I was like, I have no idea it like, how this movie wants me to feel and maybe that's the beauty of it is that like I have to make the decision myself but like 
with Patton, we were also given a very nuanced fully, you know, we were given like an interesting character to try and figure out how we felt right. about. I just, you know, like French Connection, like it's just, it's, it's a very good technical movie. It's just kind of there. That's really how I feel about it. But like, it's good. It's good. Technically, I would say the performances are solid. Like, there's no like really bad performances, which is why I can't put it below. And it's coherent. So I'm not going to put it below something like an American in Paris. <laughs> but like, yeah, I just I, I feel like number 27 is is fitting. It's where I feel feel comfortable slotting it in. I really wish we'd gotten to watch Fiddler on the Roof, though. Uh, same. That would have been, well, so good. a less meaty episode, but also more fun to watch. It would have gone a lot <laughs> higher in my list. Same, same. But but no, so that is, uh, I guess, our take on The French Connection. So it is, uh, yeah, kind of like I said earlier, I really think if you want to slog through it, go for it. But also the scenes that you need to watch are the subway chase scene the very first tailing scene and I think the very ending scene in the um, old like manufacturing building, like the lighting and the pacing and kind of how they moved through that space to me was so engaging. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good study in like action sequences Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, But yeah, just know if you haven't watched it and you're curious about it, no going in, there will be some parts that are, a very cringy but you know what that goes for a lot of the movies it we've does. covered frankly all right so that wraps up for french connection what is next so the next film is the godfather so we get to have another toxically masculine <laughs> protagonist not hero all right so until next time you can find us on social media we are at best pictures pod on instagram and twitter you can also email us in at best pictures podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear your thoughts um on these movies or any other classic movies that you might want us to cover at some point uh as i think we've stated previously the the 70s is a decade of a lot of downers so we'd love some comedy suggestions to do some special episodes on But yeah, until next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. And join us next time, as we said, for The Godfather. The first one. The first one. (laughs)